0: The group that must have really encouraged the spread of soft, fruit-bearing angiosperms was the Ornithischians, who, having evolved into their major lineages, rose to prominence during the Cretaceous. The Stegosaurs held on until roughly a hundred million years ago, but by the time they went extinct, their relatives the ankylosaurs, had given rise to many types. Some members of this group, like Edmontonia and Sauropelta, lacked the defensive tail club that their kin had and instead developed their neck and body armor or osteoderms into projecting spines. This is certainly more of a defensive anatomy, and any attacking predator risked the slash on their leg. Other ankylosaurs, like Euoplocephalus and Talorurus, had moved several of their osteoderms towards their tail end of their... well, tail, and formed a reinforced bony claw. Like the tail spines of the earlier stegosaurs, these tails could be swung at will towards predators, and biomechanical studies demonstrate that these animals could hit a target and generate an impact stress of between 364. And 718 megapascals. For larger ankylosaurs, this was enough to outright shatter bones, and the resulting infection of a wound would very well kill an attacking theropod. Porcupines rely on this strategy today, and many carnivorous mammals that have been dealt a spiny blow find themselves dead later on. While the ankylosaurs rooted along the ground for low-growing plants, they would have been joined by the two lineages of Marginocephalians, who had by the Cretaceous distinguished themselves, the pachycephalosaurs were bipedal dinosaurs that thickened the tops of their skulls with solid bone. The characteristic margin formed a shelf behind their heads that was often decorated with pointed bumps and horns. The purpose of this hard head has been speculated by many to function like the horns of sheep and goats, who butt head during the mating season as a test of strength. This would mean that these dome structures were the result of sexual selection. Interestingly. Some paleontologists have compared the skulls of different species of Pachycephalosaurs, and concluded that the young, born without the dome, underwent changes during sexual maturity by which the skull acquired the thickened bone, again similar to the growth stages that sheep and goats undergo. This is still a debated subject. The other group of Marginocephalians were the mostly quadrupedal Ceratopsians, who are familiar by the popular Triceratops. This was one of the last and largest members of the group to evolve, and just the tip of the iceberg of the total diversity of these dinosaurs. In Ceratopsians, the beak was enlarged in size and formed a sharp downward curve, almost like that of a parrot or finch. The margin here was greatly elongated into a solid or hollow frill that would have extended and covered the neck and upper back, but due to the apparent fragility of this flattened board of bone, it's unlikely that this was used for protection. The sheer size of the frill lends a possibility that this was an efficient sexual display structure that may have been brightly colored or patterned. The real defense was found on the horns that grew atop the animals' heads. These horns came in a variety of styles, with some species sprouting two large brow horns and a smaller nasal horn, like Triceratops, as well as Chasmosaurus and Pentaceratops, and others developed a long nasal horn and smaller brow horns, like Centrosaurus and Styracosaurus, the latter displaying a crown of thorns along its frill. It might seem that these structures were efficient at goring the stomachs of attacking predatory dinosaurs, and though they certainly would have been, their main function appears to have been as display structures. So, yes, sexual selection would have been at work again. Of the studies we have on Ceratopsians, it appears that the horns began as small bumps on the heads of young dinosaurs, only later lengthening in size as they grew. If one examines living mammals, like deer, cattle, and antelope, Their horns and antlers always begin as diminished structures, only later reaching full size as they mature and begin fighting for mates, so it would not be a stretch to argue that the same thing was happening among Ceratopsians. So, a Triceratops would more likely face off against another rival Triceratops than a Tyrannosaurus. Ornithopods, like other Ornithischians, reached their greatest diversity in the Cretaceous, and among them diverged a lineage with elongated and slightly flattened snouts, longer hands, and an extension of the chewing teeth into a more complex grinding battery. These were the hadrosaurs, often known as duck-billed dinosaurs. Though, given that in life their snouts would have been covered by a blunt, chopping beak, they wouldn't have really looked duck-like in their face. Nor were they duck-like in behavior. All evidence available tells us that hadrosaurs were terrestrial animals that formed large herds that swept through the lands of the Cretaceous, grazing on ferns and other low-to-medium-growing plants. They grew to massive sizes, too with the largest members of the group surpassing 50 feet in length, and given the lack of horns or claws, that would have been enough to deter most predators. In what could be another instance of sexual selection at play, many members of this group developed remarkable crests atop their heads, similar to what some pterosaurs had done. Unlike the flying reptiles, hadrosaur crests were hollow and housed an extension of their nasal passages. Biomechanical studies suggest that these dinosaurs could produce loud calls with their crests, similar to the noises of woodwind instruments. And these no doubt were complicated by whatever additional soft tissues were present. Given the wide variety of crest shapes, they would have definitely been brightly colored and used to attract mates. The sauropods experienced their own radiation of forms, and around 125 million years ago they gave rise to the titanosaurs. These were, without a doubt, the largest land animals that ever walked the earth. In the last few years, a number of finds have revealed enormous leg bones or vertebrae and Comparing them to more complete remains, these have allowed paleontologists to estimate their size. These dinosaurs, with powerful names like Dreadnoughtus and Patagotitan, may have been up to 121 feet long and weighed as much as 76 metric tons. While talk of their size is certainly invigorating, what truly made titanosaurs and other sauropods big was their ecological impact. Like elephants today, herds of sauropods would have pushed through the conifer forests of the Cretaceous, eating as much of the needle-like leaves as they could and then leaving nothing but broken and trampled trees behind. This would have kept the forests from overgrowing and subsequently encouraged new growth of other plants, as well as sapling trees. In turn, this allowed other, small dinosaurs to find the food that they needed, and their predators would follow suit. While they were certainly common animals, titanosaur numbers were controlled through their breeding and through their parenting strategy. Or rather, lack of parenting. Titanosaurs and other sauropods, appear to have been our selected species, laying enormous quantities of eggs and subsequently leaving them to fend for themselves, with the understanding that at least some would survive to adulthood. Sea turtles are living analogues, with their young undergoing an intense and harsh childhood with a barely present chance that all will live to see another day. Paleontologists have recognized that titanosaurs would have been our selected species, because we have discovered vast nesting grounds that belong to titanosaurs. There is no way to justify that all these eggs and offspring were cared for individually. For comparison, k selected species physically raise a small number of offspring and ensure that all or most of them have the skills necessary for survival in the wild. For mammals like us, we are case-selected organisms. The last major group of dinosaurs, the theropods, had expanded into a number of new niches. Many groups of theropods developed into omnivores or herbivores, and either lost their teeth or shortened and blunted them for cropping plants. Some of these, the ornithomimosaurs, evolved into ostrich-like animals and definitely resembled ostriches with long tails and working fingers. Their lengthy necks would have been good for reaching medium-growing plants, and their legs gave them an impressive stride, meaning they must have been ostrich-like in their speed, too. A smaller group, called the alverosaurs, were much smaller in stature. They had all but lost most of their fingers, save for their thumbs, and greatly reduced the length of their arms. What on earth these dinosaurs were doing is unclear, but an insectivorous lifestyle has been suggested. Just as bizarre were the therizinosaurus, which extended the length of their arms and claws and developed a cropping beak and back teeth. These are certainly herbivores, using their sharp claws to bring down the branches of trees and squatting down on their haunches as they ate like some sort of avian panda bear. There were plenty of carnivorous theropods as well, like the tyrannosaurs. By the later end of the Cretaceous, they had all developed into larger and more powerful predators. Their heads increased in size, with their palate hardening, their teeth thickening, and the roots of those teeth extending deeper into their sockets. While all this was going on, their arms had shrunken, and they lost a finger too, leaving only two digits on their hands. This implies that they were relying more on the head for dispatching prey than the forelimbs, not to mention that their hind limbs were toughened by a modification of the middlemost foot bone that had it pinched between its flanking bones. This arctometatarsus allowed tyrannosaurs to move faster and more efficiently. Some members of this group, like Albertosaurus and Allosaurus. Would have been fleet-footed killers, able to run down their prey. But the poster child of the group, Tyrannosaurus, was a heavy-bodied predator that has been estimated to have only cruised as fast as 12 miles per hour as adults. Spanning 40 feet in length and weighing at least 8 tons, Tyrannosaurus would have been able to tackle armored animals, crushing through their bones with as much as 57,000 newtons of force. One tantalizing fossil demonstrates that an individual managed to bite through the horn of a Triceratops, direct evidence that it sometimes had to face prey head-on. At the other end of the theropod spectrum were the dromaeosaurs. These are the popular raptors from the Jurassic Park films, though their film presence as pack-hunting hyperkillers undermines what their actual behaviors would have been. Biomechanical studies and comparative research with living species tell us that dromaeosaurs behaved very similarly to modern birds of prey, incidentally known as raptors. These dinosaurs would have stalked smaller animals, lodging themselves atop their bodies, grabbing onto their flesh with their raised and curved toes, stabilizing themselves with their winged arms, and ripping into them with their sharp-toothed mouths. Indeed, if you found yourself in the Cretaceous, you would be alive when they started to eat you. Related to the Dromaeosaurs were the birds, who, following the Jurassic, had diversified into a number of new forms. Cretaceous birds shortened their bony tails in favor of a pygostyle, where the remaining vertebrae fused together. A few managed to lose their teeth in favor of a beak, but the majority still retained them. Some still had working fingers with claws on their hands, while others sealed them together into one structure. One lineage of birds, the Hesperornithes, became marine animals, nearly losing their forelimbs as they adapted their hind limbs into paddling organs with webbed toes. They were essentially penguins before penguins were a thing. The Cretaceous was a blossoming time for living things with the seas full of aminoids, fishes, and marine reptiles, the air soaring with pterosaurs and early birds, and the land brimming with flowering plants, scurrying mammals, and a host of ruling reptiles. But things took a serious turn of events, and mirroring the Paleozoic before it, the Mesozoic ended with a mass extinction event 66 million years ago. This is perhaps the most familiar of these great losses of life, but what may surprise many are the intricate details that underpinned this event and the amount of evidence we have for how things really went. It has become clearer in recent years that the final million years of the Cretaceous period was a time of strong changes on Earth. The high sea levels that characterized the age had lowered, and the great interior sea waves that swept through Africa, Asia, and the Americas receded. The archipelago that was Europe was no more. Now those lands were connected into a proper subcontinent. Given that many parts of the land were reconnected, animals were able to move between them, not to mention now that the faunas and floras that characterized these inland seas had lost their habitats, and were now pushed outwards into the open ocean. This was an event known as the Maastrichtian Regression, named after an age in the late Cretaceous epoch, the last age of the Mesozoic. Groups of organisms at some localities appeared to be at a lower diversity than previously found, though it is controversial whether this was the case everywhere, or even whether the drop in sea levels was to blame. On the Indian subcontinent, which was during the Cretaceous its own island, there began a series of periodic volcanic eruptions right at the end of the period that brought vast quantities of lava to the surface. The rocks this eventually formed, called the Deacon Traps, suggest that the coverage was on an unimaginable magnitude, with over 470,000 miles of lava being pooled across India. As grand, miles-long volcanic eruptions tend to do, the carbon output would have been pretty severe, and that's not to forget the periods of darkness that would have followed as ash clouds blotted the sun in places, bringing periods of intense cool to punctuate the hot times, and the instances of acid rain that poisoned the air and water. Clearly this really was a difficult time for living things, but there was an additional insult to injury coming out of the vastness of space. During the 1980s and onwards, geologists noticed a thin band of iridium occurring at many sites throughout the world, always bordering the end of the Mesozoic Era. As far as minerals go, iridium is not common on Earth, but prime sources can be found in extraterrestrial rocks, like meteors. This led to the proposal that the planet had been impacted by a bolide at the end of the Cretaceous, 66 million years ago. One question remaining was where was the crater? It took researchers many years until 1990, when a proper connection was placed between the iridium band and a 110 mile wide crater in the Yucatan Peninsula that, though steeled with earth, left traces of its impact in the remains of shocked quartz and other minerals that indicate a severe crash took place. The rocks of the crater were properly dated and the case was sealed. The Cretaceous period ended with a bolide impact. How this event unfolded would have made even the most hardcore disaster films look tame. There would have been no warning, maybe the presence of a new star in the sky that later turned into a second sun, but on the day that it struck, it hit the Earth with enough force to push the atmosphere away and send miles of rock into outer space. Imagine setting off a hundred trillion tons of TNT, the sheer size of the impact, which would have been in the ocean, Sent off enormous tsunamis with waves many hundreds of feet high. Earthquakes would have radiated from the site, and certainly any organisms within the range of the blast would have just vanished. The long-term effects of the bolide impact would have caused a particularly intense period of global cooling, like a nuclear winter, as a huge eternal fog of dust blanketed the planet and destroyed all ecosystems. An already impacted biosphere was just now dealt a harsh blow, with 75% of all organisms going extinct. Of course, all of the dinosaurs save for one lineage of birds were killed off, but a great host of marine reptiles, the plesiosaurs, mosasaurs, and giant sea turtles, and the flying pterosaurs were wiped out too. All the rudest bivalves that formed great reefs, and the great clusters of coiled aminoids and squid-like belemnoids were all gone, and there were losses among the reptiles, mammals, insects, and gymnosperms too. It was another tragic end to a time of amazing and beautiful organisms, But as is the case for the story of life on Earth, it was time for another era to take hold and share its own amazing and beautiful plants and animals. And with that, we must lay anchor to our river journey. In the next episode, we close out our story of life with the Cenozoic Era and visit a world where the survivors of the Cretaceous extinction event, including our mammalian relatives, filled the planet with their descendants. We see the rise of many popular and well-known animals to our societies, and see how many of the landmarks that we know and love came to be. Grasslands form and expand, mountains rise and fall, and the stage sets for the evolution of our ancestors. That's the end of this episode of On the River of History. I'd like to thank my friend and PhD student in paleontology, Albert Chen, for reading over this transcript and checking it for accuracy. You can find him on Twitter, at Alberta Anikus, and you can check out his blog, Raptor Maniacs. If you enjoyed listening in and are interested in hearing more, you can visit my new website at www.podcasts.com, just search for On the River of History. This podcast is also available on iTunes, just search for it by name. A transcript of today's episode is available for the hearing impaired or for those who just want to read along, the link is in the description. And if you like what I do, you're welcome to stop by my Twitter, at KillDeerCheer. You can also support this podcast by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash JTermell. And all donations are greatly appreciated, and will help continue this podcast. Thank you all for listening, and never forget, the story of the world is your story too.